The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. This morning, we get to celebrate the whole purpose for why we exist, the whole purpose for why we are here this morning, the whole purpose for why this church exists. And that's because for unto us has been born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, I I invite you, if you don't, and if you have the Bible on your phone, pull it out. That's okay. But I invite you to open with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And as you're turning to that passage, Luke chapter 2, I want to, uh, I'll give you my outline this morning from the very onset. Uh, We are going to see this morning in our text the historical basis for the birth of Christ, the theological significance of the birth of Jesus, and then finally, the personal implications, the so what. What does it mean for my life? What, why, why does something that happened two years, 2,000 years ago, why does that have bearing, significance, purpose, meaning for my life today? So that's my prayer this morning. So before we do that, let's go ahead and spend a, a little bit more time in prayer to, and ask for God's help this morning. Well, Father, if we are honest, we would say that as the song was sung, we are weak. Lord, we are broken. We are needy. We are desperate. Lord, I pray this morning that you would humble us so that we see that and we recognize that. And and we praise you, Father, for your promises that, that to those people who are of humble estate, who are lowly, you come and you meet us. So I pray that you would do that this morning. We know that it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, come now and breathe life into our hearts. I pray maybe for the first time for some and for others, I pray that you would do a work of of revival and of renewal and of recommitment in our hearts this morning. That we would come and that we would adore the one who came and who made himself low, who humbled himself, who became a servant and who served us all the way to the cross. Pray that we would adore him this morning. So come, Holy Spirit, help us to do that. We pray, enable us to do that. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Amen. Well, this morning, like I said, we will see first the historical basis for the birth of Jesus. And so read with me verses 1 through 7. Dr. Luke, he says this, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And he went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there... The same that time came for her to give birth and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. And so look with me, you'll notice verse one. It says that and it, it, that there was a decree issued from Caesar Augustus, who was also known as Octavian, and he was the first and the most famous of the Roman emperors. And so during his reign, Caesar Augustus, he reformed the Roman 
tax system. He developed networks of roads. He instituted what's known as the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome, where there was broadly peace in the empire. He, he, he established an official courier sim, uh, system. He uh, had a, a standing army, established the Praetor, Praetorian Guard, as well as police and firefighting services. For him. Why do I share all of that for you? It's not so that you can wow somebody uh, today during the dinner table or so you can be ready for your trivia night uh, coming up. I share that with you to say what happened here in Luke chapter two. It actually really happened in a space time continuum. This is historical fact. In, in verse two, it tells us that that this census occurred under the governance of Quirinius. And so it Continue. Luke, he's not he's not shy with giving us historical facts to to uh, to to support the historical coming of Jesus. And so Jesus, he was born under Caesar's reign and under Quirinius's governance. It was during a time well documented by historians. And then verse four speaks of Joseph and Mary traveling from a real historical place, Nazareth, to a real historical place, Bethlehem. And, and you can still go and visit these places today. And so again, why do I share this? I share this because whatever you may think about the claims of Christianity, you cannot deny the historical evidence that Jesus's birth, it really actually happened. If, if you don't accept Jesus as a historical person, then to be consistent, you cannot accept Caesar Augustus, Alexander the Great, Napoleon, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, or anyone else of history. The virgin birth of Jesus is a historical fact. So if you are a Christian in this room, I want this to be an encouragement for you. Your faith, it's grounded in historical reality. It's not a fanciful religion that's full of mythological ideas. It's not a set of theological propositions alone. Now, what we believe centers upon the historical birth, the historical life, the historical death, and the historical resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord. And if you aren't a Christian in this room, I, I again, I say, welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm so glad you are here. I, I hope this truth, that it encourages you to explore, to consider the claims of Christianity. Because the Bible is not... Stories, some, some stories, some, some fables collected. It's not Aesop's fables. It, it recounts events that actually took place in a real space-time continuum. There's nothing to hide here. What, what is recorded in Scripture actually happened. There is historical evidence for it. But, but not only is there historical evidence, we also see that there is fulfillment of biblical prophecy. So now in order for Jesus's coming uh, as Messiah to be legitimate, it was necessary that his birth fulfill the prophecies that were foretold of the Messiah's coming, right? If he didn't fulfill these promises, we could not say his coming was legitimate. And in one of those, it's Micah chapter five, verse two in the Old Testament. It says this, but you Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And, and so we know Joseph and Mary going from Nazareth to Bethlehem. In that migration, the prophecy was fulfilled that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Th this was written 800 years prior to Christ's birth. 
And so concerning this prophecy, Peter Stoner, he was a professor from Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. He, he and his students, they calculated the statistical probability of this prophecy being fulfilled during Jesus' time. So if you're not a numbers person, maybe just uh, uh, you let this gloss over you. Uh, but they concluded that the chance of one man being born in Bethlehem during this time was th- th- to fulfill this prophecy. It was one in 300,000. And, and they presented these calculations for review to a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation, and they gave their stamp of approval on their mathematical uh, process. And, and so then they continued, uh, not, not just this one prophecy, but then they looked at 48 different prophecies. And they said, okay, what would be this, the statistical probability that these 48 prophecies would be fulfilled in one person? And, and so after doing the math, they found out it was an incredible one and 10 to the 157th power probability that these 48 prophecies would be fulfilled in one person. Now, now that's a huge number, right? Just so you know, that's one times 10 to the 157 zeros. I mean, that, we, don't, we don't have a frame of mind to understand that incredibly slim probability. But to give a little bit of illustration for that, the professor said, he used the example of electrons. And so electrons, as you know, they they are very small objects, right? We can't see them with the naked eye. They're smaller than atoms, and and it would take 2.5 times 10 to the 15th. Not 157, but 15th. Just just a little bit smaller, right? It would take 2.5 times 10 to the 15th of them laid side by side to make one inch. So even if we counted 250 of these each minute, and we counted day and night 24-7, it would take 19 million years just to count a line of these electrons one inch long. We're not talking 10 to the 15th power. We're talking 10 to the 157th power. The statistical probability that all, that 48 of these prophecies would be fulfilled in one person. It, it didn't happen. What I'm trying to communicate here, it didn't happen by happenstance or by coincidence. It happened by God's providence. God sent forth his son to be the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecies, to be the Messiah, the long-awaited one. And just as an aside, we don't have 48 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. That was just to make the math easy, uh, easy, right? We, we 456 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his coming So church, does this not give you great confidence in the veracity and the truthfulness of God's word? We can believe this because Jesus has fulfilled all of God's promises for us in his coming. The the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of this biblical prophecy, it's not happenstance. And so in addition to these statistical probabilities, which as an engineer, I find fascinating. uh, And and so I'm sorry for those of you who don't. uh, But something else that might blow your mind as well is found in answering this question. How did God work to make sure that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem? He's from Nazareth. His parents are from Nazareth, north of Bethlehem. How, how, How did God work to get Jesus to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy? Look at me again at verse one. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So how do we answer that question? That God caused a large scale census to take place so that Joseph and Mary would coincidentally be located in Bethlehem 
just in time for Mary to give birth. Now listen, God could have sent Gabriel to Joseph or Mary again to give them a heads up that they need to get a move on to Bethlehem in order to make sure that, that the biblical prophecies would be fulfilled. Now, now surely those who were taxed under this new census probably would have wished God would have worked that way. I don't want a new tax. I, I, just send Gabriel. Don't send a new tax for me. They would have wished maybe God would have worked that way. So, so why did God choose an empire-wide census to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem? Why did he choose the least efficient path possible to get them there? Listen, church, he did so to demonstrate his absolute sovereignty and his power over all the kings of the earth. He did so to pull rank on Caesar Augustus, that though Caesar regarded himself as the exalted one, and that's what Augustus means, he, God did it in this way to show that there is only one who is worthy of worship and there is only one who is the exalted one, and that is the one true living God. He, he did so to demonstrate what Proverbs 21.1 teaches us, that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wants. And so from eternity past, God has purposed and prepared, and he personally orchestrated the events of human history leading up to, as our text will say later, for this day, for the coming of the Son of God into the world. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And he used his little pawn, Caesar Augustus, to help fulfill his biblical prophecy and to usher his plan of redemption in the world. In our passage this morning, we see the historical basis for the birth of Jesus. It's historical evidence and its fulfillment of biblical prophecy. But let's look now at verses 8 through 14, where we will see the theological significance. Why Jesus came. So let's read verses 8 through 14. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there were with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. And so just so you know, we, th- th- in this section we will look at verse 11 and verse 14. In looking at those two verses, we see that Jesus came to this earth to fulfill three primary purposes. First, he came to reveal God's glory. And secondly, he came to rescue God's people. And thirdly, he came to bring God's peace. What was the significant, the theological significance for Jesus' coming? To reveal his glory, to rescue his people, and to bring his peace. So first, he came to reveal God's glory to the world. Look at me at verses 8 through 10. Who, who did the Lord choose to reveal the radiance of his glory, his Shekinah glory, the radiance, the refulgence, as uh, that's an older word, the refulgence of his glory? Who did he reveal that to? To, to? to the king? Did he reveal that to Caesar Augustus? No, who did he reveal it to? 
lowly shepherds, lowly herdsmen. And so this continues the theme that we've been seeing the past two weeks, that it's not the great and the noble and the prominent and the exalted that the Lord is pleased to reveal himself to. It is those who are of what? Humble estate. Lowly shepherds who altogether had zero social clout. And so maybe the equivalent today would be the angels appearing, not on Capitol Hill in D.C. to our elected officials or, or at a seminary campus, but the angel appearing to the migrant workers sweating it out in the heat of summer in our nation's farmlands. That, that, that's maybe a modern equivalent. He appeared to those with no social significance. Nothing in them would have prepared nor warranted their involvement in our Lord's birth. And so, church, isn't this a picture for us of God's grace? There is nothing in ourselves, nothing that, that warrants or merits us or, 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 or puts us into the good graces of God. Our salvation, it's all owing to his grace, to his unmerited favor shown toward us. And so, again, I want to remind you, church, of Isaiah 66, 2, where the Lord says that this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at his word. Listen, it's often the unknown in the world who are well known by almighty God. So do you want to see the glory of God? Do you want him to look upon you? Do you want him to visit you? Then humble yourself before his presence and see that your only hope and your only help in this life, it's found in him. As the hymn would say, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. It, it was to the lowly, humble shepherds that the Lord chose to reveal his glory that night. Yeah, well, listen, while the radiance of God's glory was revealed to the shepherds, the essence the nucleus, the epicenter, the fullness of God's glory. It wasn't revealed to the shepherds. It was revealed in God's son. That night, God's glory, it didn't shine most brightly in the sky. His glory shone most brightly in Mary's son. And so the shepherds beheld God's glory that night, to be sure, with their eyes. But that night, Mary and Joseph held God in their hands. And as the song says, who would have dreamed or ever conceived that we could hold God in our hands? The giver of life was born in the night, revealing God's glorious plan to save the world. In his account, the Apostle John writes that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He goes on to say that no one has ever seen God but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made God known for us. And Jesus attested to his own deity many times in his life. And maybe one of the clearest examples is in John chapter 8, when, when he applies to himself the covenant name of God, Yahweh. He says, before Abraham was what I am. And when asking his disciples who they believed him to be, what did Peter answer Jesus when he said, who do you say that I am? What did Peter say? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And the Apostle Thomas would put it this way, that after, the, after seeing the resurrected Christ and after putting his hands in the nail-pierced hands of the risen Savior, Thomas said this, my Lord and my God. And then the Apostle Paul said that Jesus, he was the very image of the invisible God and that through him and by whom, uh, by whom and for whom all things were created. Jesus, he came to this earth to reveal God's glory to us because he came as Emmanuel, God with us. He revealed God's glory because he is God, God the Son. Secondly, we see, church, that the theological significance for Jesus is his coming, that he came to rescue God's people, rescue God's people from their sins. Notice verse 11, what the angel calls Jesus. What, what is he? He is first, he is savior. And so listen, our fundamental problem in life, it's not, it's not financial instability. It's not relational hostility. And it isn't educational insufficiency. Those things are real. Those are problems, but they're not our greatest problem. Our greatest and our most fundamental problem in life. It's not financial. It's not relational. It's not educational. It's spiritual, and it's that we are sinners, guilty for a holy God. Listen, we can always make more money. We can always spend more hours with the counselor. We can always pile on degrees, and I'm not making light of those problems. Those are real, difficult, painful problems. But these problems, sometimes, oftentimes, they have a solution that we can get for ourselves through hard work. But we can't remove our own guilt, and we can't atone for our own sin. We can't fix our greatest problem, sin, and we can't escape our greatest danger, which is God's holy and just wrath toward sinners. So this is a problem. What, but what we couldn't do, listen to what God's word says. It says, but God demonstrated his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, helpless, hopeless, without any hope whatsoever when we were sinners christ died for us for you jesus came to this earth as savior to bear our sin and to endure god's wrath in our place on the cross and so we can't atone for our own sin but praise be to god that the sinless son of god he can and he did for all who would repent and trust in him for their salvation he came as savior but notice what else our text says, that he didn't just come as Savior. He came as the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And, and so we, we spoke at this at greater length in, in other sermons uh, a couple weeks ago. But, but suffice to say that Jesus came to this earth as the Messiah, as God's promised king who came to save his people from their sins. And, and it was oftentimes during either God's judgment on Israel or on, uh, when they were oppressed by other nations that that. Israel's messianic expectation, their hope and their desire for this coming king, this coming Messiah, that it increased. And so all the future hopes and dreams of Israel, it rested on the shoulders of this coming Messiah, a king who would restore God's place in the world. On this day, for unto you is born Israel, the Messiah. He was born in the city of David and he came as Messiah. But contrary to what Israel thought, Contemporary Israel thought he didn't come to make Israel great again. He came 
for a greater purpose. He came, Jesus came to establish and to rule over a greater kingdom, the kingdom of God. And so the third description the angel gives of this baby boy wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger, it's, it's that he's Savior, he's Messiah, but the third one, that he is the Lord. And again, for the sake of time, you don't want to be here till 2 p.m., I, I trust. Um, I, I will only touch on this aspect of Jesus's lordship, that it signifies his deity, that he shares the very same essence, status, and identity as God. So listen, from the very moment he was conceived, from the very moment he left heaven and came to this earth, Jesus reigned as Lord over all. And so I want to pause and ask, is he Lord of your life? Does your life this past week, does it confirm your confession of faith that he is Lord? Is Jesus Lord of your life? If not, I invite you today, come trust in him. Make him Lord of your life. Maybe you have confessed him as Lord. Maybe you are a Christian, but there are areas of your life where you are still withholding from his lordship, where you're failing to bend your knees in full surrender and glad submission to his authority. Hudson Taylor, he was a, a missionary in the 19th century. He, he, he said this. He said that Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. Jesus is to reign over your relationships, over your finances, over your marriage, over your parenting, over your singleness, over your career, your present, your future, your time, your consumption of entertainment, your thoughts, your affections, your emotions, your actions. He is to rule over every aspect of your life. He is either Lord over all or he is not Lord at all. Listen, church, for unto you, unto you is born this day. In the city of David, a savior who is Christ, the Lord. He came to be and to rest to be our savior and to rescue us from our sin. Third theological significance we see in our text that Jesus came. He came not only to reveal God's glory, not only to rescue us from our sin, but he came to bring God's peace into our relationships. Notice that second half of verse 14 where the angel says this, the multitude of heavenly hosts, they say on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. What, is, what would you say right now is your greatest need? In a time of abounding fear and anxiety and bitterness and vitriol and hostility and tribalism and division, in our country and in our world today, I think what the world needs most, what you need most this Christmas is peace, right? And so while preparing this sermon, uh, I was interested on how those maybe who, are, who don't follow Jesus, how they would answer that question. How do I find peace? So I Googled how to find peace. Google knows all. Uh, many of the articles I skimmed gave similar suggestions that, that a way to find peace is by controlling your breathing, by practicing mindfulness, by, by meditating, by ignoring those negative thoughts, those persnickety thoughts about you, by using kind words with yourself, by being just trying to be more grateful, by practicing self-care, experiencing nature, go for a hike, it said, 
by focusing more on yourself, etc. But, but, but you notice, if you're listening closely, the common thing about each one of those suggestions is that they fail to identify the root cause. Why do I not have peace? Th- these things maybe distract me from my absence of inner peace, but, but they don't identify and they can't fix the root problem. Why do I not have peace? Maybe, maybe I just do these things and pretend a deeper problem doesn't exist. And maybe, just maybe, it'll fly away as I'm doing my meditation. Except it doesn't. It doesn't go away. As hard as we may try, that underlying foundational root cause for the absence of our peace, it remains. And so rather than practicing some group breathing techniques this morning, or, or rather than breaking out into some meditative yoga together or, or chanting in unison some self-affirming mantras, I thought a better use of our time this morning would be asking by asking this fundamental question. What is it that robs me of true, inner, lasting peace? It, it was once said that in our lives, we won't be at peace with others until we are at peace within And we won't be at peace within until we are at first at peace with God. And so the root cause then for our absence of peace, the fundamental reason is that we are not at peace with God. Our sin has caused us to be in hostile opposition to God. And in our sin, we have rejected him. We have rebelled against him him and we have replaced him with all kinds of other idolatries things in our life that promise us happiness but can never truly deliver and if this is true and it is if our fundamental problem is that we lack peace with god because of our sin because our sin has severed and separated our relationship with him how then could we ever broker peace with a holy god Again, what did we say before? We can't. But praise be to God. God sent his son to do that greater work we could never do ourselves. Romans 5.1 puts it this way. That therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God our Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. The way we have peace with God is not by our own appeasement, but it's by Christ's atonement on his cross. It's by faith, believing that what he did 2,000 years ago on the cross to be my sin-bearing, my my wrath-removing substitute, he did so for me and for you. He did so. And our job is to lay hold of his finished work by faith, his atoning work, and by putting on his perfect righteousness. And when we do so, the Bible says that we are declared by God to be righteous. We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, when we are at, when we are righteous before God, we will be at peace with him. So listen, you, 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 maybe you're thinking, I thought I came for a Christmas sermon, not an Easter sermon. Listen, the cradle and the cross are inseparable. Amen. The cradle and the cross, they are inseparable. The purpose for Jesus's coming was the cross. Not to be an example for us, not to be a teacher to us, but to be a wrath-removing, sin-bearing substitute for us. 
John Piper, he put it this way. He said this, that he, he, he's a pastor. He said, when we are justified by faith, God's anger at us because of our sin, it's put away. Our rebellion against him, it's overcome. God adopts us into his family. And from now on, all of his dealings toward us are for our good. He will never be against us anymore. He is our father and he is our friend. We have peace. We don't need to be afraid anymore. And because we have peace with God of being justified by faith, we can grow and we can begin to be at peace with ourselves. Peace with God leads us to being at peace within. I think the hymn before the throne of God above, I think it says it best. That when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end for all my sin. When we are at peace with God, it leads us to be at peace within the, the reason the world says we need to suppress those negative thoughts and we need to say those self-affirming words is because guilt and shame reside as permanent residents within our hearts. We try to kick them out. We try to get rid of them, but they never go away. But when we know that we are at peace with God and that he is now our father and our friend, that all of my guilt and all of my shame was removed and placed on Jesus on the cross, then a new resident takes, uh, a, a new resident moves into our hearts. And it is his permanent peace that's able to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, to guard us from those assaults of fear and anxiety and guilt and shame. Romans 8 would put it this way Paul says this Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? When your conscience comes at you, when others come at you and they begin to accuse you, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus? He is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who right now, church, is interceding for you? Listen, no matter what, no matter what may happen in your life, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, maybe, maybe on the surface, it looks like we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But it says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Listen, church, for we are sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus has brought peace. He has brokered peace with God for us. For our salvation. And then when we are at peace with God. And when we are at peace within. When we have been humbled by his grace. It motivates us as we can. As it is possible. Scripture would say so far as it depends on us. It leads us to live peaceably with everyone else in our lives. For it is those who have received God's grace. Who are to be gracious with others. It is those who have been infinitely forgiven who are to forgive 70 times 7. It is those who have been reconciled to God who initiate reconciliation with others. It is the sons and the daughters of God, Jesus would say, who are to be peacemakers in this world. When we are at peace with God because of the gospel, we can truly experience God's peace within 
And it's a peace that leads us to seek peace with other people in our life. Jesus' birth, it's theologically significant because he came to reveal God's glory in the world. He came to rescue God's people from our sin. And he came to bring God's peace to our relationships, to our relationship with God, to our relationship with ourselves, and to our, with our relationship with other people. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. So then now we come to the part of our service this morning, the so what? Why does this matter for me? Let's read verses 15 through 20 and we will end with this. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying God and praising him for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So in this passage, and and I'm um, pulling from verse uh, 13 as well. But in our passage this morning, we see three responses to the coming of Jesus. First, we see verse 13, which we read earlier. The angels worshiped. It says a multitude of heavenly hosts, literally an army of angels. So God sent a multitude of angelic brigades. They were sent to Bethlehem, not to wage war, but to worship their king lying in the cradle. The angels, how did they respond to Jesus' coming? They worshiped. Next, next we see the shepherds. How did the shepherds respond to Jesus' coming? They sought him and then they proclaimed him. Look at verse 15. It says, let us go to Bethlehem and see the things that has happened. So listen, this morning you have heard the good news of Jesus' coming. So I want to ask you, will you seek him like the shepherds? Will you seek him? And then in seeking him and in receiving his salvation, will you then proclaim him to others? They glorified God and they praised him for all that they had heard and seen. The shepherds, the angels worshiped him. The shepherds sought and proclaimed him. And then finally we see that Mary, she treasured Jesus. She treasured him. Mary, when, when, when she gave birth to the, the savior of the world, our text says that she stored up the, that truth within her heart. She continually thought about her baby boy and what he would bring. She meditated upon the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so what, what do all three of these have in common? If you were to do a Venn diagram, what, what would be stuck right there in the middle? What's the one word in the middle? They were full of joy. Every single one of them were full of joy, which makes sense, right? Because the gospel, it is good news, of great joy, the angel told us. Literally, that word great joy in verse 11, it's literally mega joy. And so if your understanding of the gospel, if it doesn't lead you, if it doesn't lead you to mega joy, then listen, you have yet to fully understand the gospel. You may understand its truths intellectually. You may even believe in the gospel. You may be a Christian, but has the truth of the gospel, has this good news of mega joy resonated within your heart such that it births new affections, new desires, new worship within your heart for your Savior. 
This is what leads us to a vibrant walk with the Lord where his joy, his peace, his spirit, it's abiding and it's abounding within us. So I just want to encourage you, if you are a guest or if you're a member, uh, January 11th, we're going to be starting a new Bible study on Wednesday nights. It's going to be called Gospel. We're going to go through a book called Gospel. And, and I encourage you, if you can, please come join us at 6 o'clock where we will discover the depths of what Jesus has done for us and its implications for our lives. And so uh, we, we've looked at the personal implications of Christ's coming. For the angels, they worshiped him, right? The shepherds, they sought him. Mary, she treasured him. But, but there's one more person in this story with a personal implication. One more person which demands a response on the line. And that's you. Listen, this good news of great joy, it demands a personal response. So like the shepherds, will you seek him? Like the angels, will you worship him? Like Mary, will you treasure him? Or in hearing this good news of great joy, will you disregard him? And would you reject his salvation that he came to give you? He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And so if you don't yet know him, I want to invite you this morning, today, what better day than Christmas morning to repent of your sin and to trust in him as Savior, to receive his salvation, to be declared righteous before God, to be at peace with God. Finally, I'm at peace. What better day than to trust in him as Savior, as Messiah, and as Lord? Will your attitude toward Jesus this Christmas, will it be to sentimentalize him? Will it be to commercialize him? Or will it be to adore him for who he is and for what he has done for us? And so as we sing one final time, oh, come, let us adore him. I pray that that would be true for you. I pray that in the depths of your heart that, that, it would, that you would sing this in truth. Oh, come, let us adore him. Adore the one who came as a historical person to reveal God's glory, to rescue God's people, and to bring God's peace. And if you aren't at peace with God, I would love to, to speak with you, either during this time or after the service, and to share with you how you can receive Jesus' salvation today. Come, church, let's adore him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.